Hello loves, my name is Nelson. Thank you for being with us today. We are continuing in our new teaching series called The Third Way, which we began last week. And this is essentially a deep dive into what it means to pattern our lives after the Jesus way, the way of loving our enemies, another option between fight and flight, the way Jesus called the narrow path because it is not the way our egos tend to default to. And so since we're in the season of Eastertide, we are engaging this third way theme through the lens of several post-resurrection stories as told by the gospel writers, the original Fab Four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So speaking of, I wanna talk about these guys for just a few moments. Matthew, Mark, and Luke each tell the Jesus story in a similar way. This is why we often call them the synoptic gospels. They're told with a similar optic or point of view. Details do vary, but it's clear that these three compositions share common sources. John, the fourth gospel, tells the story quite differently. These differences sometimes cause tension within people who have a limited understanding of the ancient world, which on one level is all of us. What's vital to grasp regarding storytelling in the ancient world is its underlying motivation, which as one writer put it, is essentially this. Storytelling in the ancient world was driven less by a duty to convey true details accurately and more by a desire to proclaim true meaning powerfully. Less by a duty to convey true details accurately and more by a desire to proclaim true meaning powerfully. Isn't that helpful language? It's not that an accurate accounting of the facts didn't matter, that they could just write whatever they felt like, make up stuff, not at all. It's just that factual details were secondary to conveying meaning. So in the story of the feeding of the 5,000, or was it 4,000? The precise number of loaves and fishes and baskets left over does matter, but the specifics are less important than what Jesus did with them. What matters more is what a miracle of provision and abundance tells us about what God is like. To say it another way, the ancient editors who put the New Testament together were content to let the variances stand as they were, so as to enable each story to convey its intended meaning in its own way. This is really important to remember when it comes to reading the Gospels. And it's a good, another good opportunity to practice the third way in connection with how we understand Scripture, particularly because the third way in many respects is about what we do with difference. Here's what I mean. Literally for millennia, people have been feeling weird and uneasy about the fact that there are differences between the resurrection accounts in the Gospels. So there are differences. One response has been to deny they exist. Differences? What differences? God said it. I believe it. That settles it. A second response has been to dismiss them as contradictions, to discount their historicity, simply write them off. But what if there was another alternative? You see where I'm going with this? Third way? I feel like I'm giving a pitch on the dragon's den. There's gotta be a better way! For reals though, what if there were a third possibility? Rather than denying or dismissing, could it be that the way forward involves simply realizing that ancient storytellers worked with a different set of rules than modern journalists and scientists and historians? 
So friends, taking a literary approach as opposed to an obsessively literal one helps us not be scandalized by the differences, but instead be fascinated by them. As we've said, one part of the story where details differ is what happened post-resurrection. Mark's gospel, which is generally assumed to be the earliest account, comes to a close without any details regarding the days after Jesus rose from the dead. In Luke's gospel, we hear Jesus tell the disciples, stay in Jerusalem. In Matthew, the resurrected Jesus only greets some of the women in Jerusalem. He then gets them to tell the male disciples, go to Galilee. I'll catch up with them later. In John's gospel, the risen Christ appears to the disciples in Jerusalem on Easter Sunday evening, and then again, just over a week later. And a while after that, the disciples leave Jerusalem and go to Galilee, where he appears to them once more. If we take only the difference in geography, here's what fascination could look like. One, if the resurrection appearances only happened in Galilee, that could convey that the risen Christ continues to work at the margins of society. Two, if they only happened in Jerusalem, it would suggest that the risen Christ dares to infiltrate the very centers of power. Three, to have them take place in both places would mean that the risen Christ is moving everywhere, which is so much more beautiful and powerful than just one or the other, is it not? Third way. So for this week, we're going to imagine ourselves with the disciples in John's gospel in Jerusalem. You've heard the story once. I'm going to offer it one more time in another translation. We're going to hear from Eugene Peterson's message translation. John 20 from 19 to 31. Later on that day, the disciples had gathered together, but fearful of the Jews had locked all the doors in the house. Jesus entered, stood among them and said, peace to you. Then he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples seeing the master with their own eyes were exuberant. Jesus repeated his greeting, peace to you. Just as the father sent me, I send you. Then he took a deep breath and breathed into them. Receive the Holy Spirit, he said. If you forgive someone's sins, they're gone for good. If you don't forgive sins, what are you going to do with them? But Thomas, sometimes called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other, other disciples told him, we saw the master. But he said, unless I see the nail holes in his hands, put my finger in the nail holes and stick my hand in his side, I won't believe it. Eight days later, his disciples were again in the room. This time, Thomas was with them. Jesus came through the locked doors stood among them and said, peace to you. Then he focused his attention on Thomas. Take your finger, examine my hands. Take your hand and stick it in my side. Don't be unbelieving, believe. Thomas said, my master, my God. Jesus said, so you believe because you've seen with your own eyes. Even better blessings are in store for those who believe without seeing. Jesus provided far more God-revealing signs than are written down in this book. These are written down, so you will believe that Jesus is the Messiah, Son of God, and in the act of believing, have real and eternal life in the way he personally revealed it. Can you picture the scene? 
Just three days after Jesus dies, the disciples are fearing for their lives behind locked doors. If they ventured outside, they might, people might recognize them as Jesus' friends, call the authorities, and they'd be done for. Recall that amazing song we listened to last week on Easter Sunday morning, The Cross Made the Change. In one verse it says, when they saw, when they saw Jesus, they saw a rebel and a problem. To the Jewish leaders, Jesus was nothing but a troublemaker, a rabble rouser. To make matters worse, now there are rumors being spread about him rising from the dead. If they're true, then the movement has not completely died, which means Jesus' closest friends had targets on their backs. So they locked all the doors, and don't miss this, they gathered together. Tense, anxious, jumpy as they were, they were practicing being a community. And then all of a sudden they felt something, a familiar presence, but it couldn't be. Yes, it was. Jesus showed up. How could Jesus be among us? Peace to you, he says. Now, think of all the things Jesus could have said. Where were y'all when you, I needed you the most? Why couldn't you stay awake with me in the garden? Thank you so much for abandoning me, you guys. He could have been passive aggressive, just not show up at all. But according to the story, none of that was even hinted at. Immediately after Jesus has been raised up, the first thing he does is find his friends. Frightened and tense, the ditchers and the betrayers, the sad and the confused, and he offers peace, shalom. Hi guys, not dead anymore. In fact, death has been defeated. I'm back. I want you to be whole, fully alive as I am. Peace to you. Peace and peacemaking are like the subatomic particles of the third way. They're its essence. Not scolding, condemning, or belittling, not ghosting, avoiding, or keeping a safe distance. Peace, wholeness, aliveness, shalom. So it starts to dawn on them in that moment that the women's reports weren't just wishful thinking. They were true. Jesus was among us. We too were experiencing the risen one in the flesh. How might Jesus want to be among us here and now? In our own anxiousness and jumpiness, despair and danger. Here's some good Eastertide news. Whatever space we're in, emotionally, spiritually, physically, personally, we don't have to change it in order for Jesus to meet us where we are. Peace to you, he said. Peace. One of the names given to Jesus was the Prince of Peace. It was his name. So we could say Jesus stood among them as the very embodiment of what he spoke over them. And then he does three things that changed the disciples forever. First, he says, just as the Father sent me, I send you. Uh, them? There they were, huddled together, on lockdown like a bunch of cowards, and Jesus is telling them they're still the game plan for carrying out his mission. There's no plan B. Them? Us? Really? Yeah. <laughs> 
the risen Christ still sends and entrusts us as his flawed and nervous, bruised yet whole followers to be the ones who put flesh on the peace we've been given. Okay, but, and before those original disciples could even ask how, Jesus does the second thing, takes a deep breath, and he breathes into them. Can I just awkwardly name the fact that given the moment we're in, I've been trying to imagine how the conferral of the Holy Spirit would have happened during a global pandemic. Picturing them all with masks on, Jesus saying, okay, I know you're all nervous, but let's just go outside for this part. Keep your masks on, just stay six feet apart, but I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna breathe on you. It's okay, don't freak out, I don't have symptoms. You're gonna be fine. Now there's no mention of COVID in the gospel witness, so we don't have to worry about this. I just kind of wanted to engage in a little pandemic era midrash. Receive the Holy Spirit, Jesus says. It's like he's saying, shh, here's how. My very breath and life will fill and empower you. This is just like Genesis, when God breathed into Adam and Eve. This is a new beginning, a new Genesis. And you are the prototypes of a new kind of human community. Then the third thing, the biggest shocker. Anyone who had scars like his, the nail prints in your hands and feet would have been expected to say, all right, you guys, it's time to saddle up your war horses and go get revenge on those evil beasts who did this to me. But he didn't say that. Instead, Jesus said, I am sending you out with the power to forgive. Neither revenge nor escape, neither fight nor flight, peace, forgiveness, relationship, the third way. Not what you expect from someone who has suffered like Jesus did, but on that Easter Sunday evening in their locked up hideout, that was the message they all received. All that is except Thomas, who wasn't with them that night. So later the story continues, they tell Thomas what happened. As expected, he's skeptical. Unless I see him, unless I touch those scars for myself, I'm not buying it. I preached this text uh, before, years ago, and at that time I focused a lot on doubt and how I, I kind of think poor Thomas has been given a bit of a bad rap by Christians through the ages. I called it the gift of doubt. We also did a series years ago called The Skeptical Believer based on the claim that those two terms are not mutually exclusive. One of my favorite quotes on doubt is by Frederick Buechner who said, whether your faith is that there is a God or is that there is not a God. If you don't have any doubts, you're either kidding yourself or asleep. Doubts are the ants in the pants of faith. They keep it awake and moving. Rachel Held Evans went a bit further saying doubt is the mechanism by, with, by which faith evolves and matures. It's the only way we can slew away false fundamentals that obscure and sometimes poison the gospel. If embracing that means I celebrate doubt, then let me be the first to offer a toast. I just love that. This sermon is less focused on the theme of doubt, but I at least wanted to name it because doubts are something we all wrestle with from time to time, maybe even especially during this time. Back to the story. Let's imagine actually being with them this time. 
So just over a week later, we gathered again. This time, Thomas was with us, still nervous, still on lockdown. And just like before, the presence of Jesus suddenly became real and tangible. He spoke peace to us again and then made a beeline for Thomas, beckoning him to see, touch, believe. Jesus didn't berate Thomas for doubting. He wanted him to help him believe. He wanted to help him believe. My Lord and my God, Thomas replied. In that moment, our minds went back to Thursday night when Thomas asked where Jesus was going and how to get there. Jesus said, I am the way. Then Philip says to Jesus, show us the Father. And Jesus replies, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And now we're sitting here 10 days later witnessing this. And we can't help but wonder if Thomas is starting to see what Jesus meant. One thing you got to admit about Thomas, he may not have believed at the time, but he stuck with us. He kept coming back. He kept showing up. If he hadn't wanted to believe, he had a week to leave and go back home. But he didn't. He stayed. Not believing, but wanting to believe. It struck me in a fresh way this week, as I've been living in this text, why Jesus came back to the same lockdown room eight days later. All the same people were there, save one. Why would he do that, if not to make sure Thomas was there to see him, to touch him, and to believe? Jesus made an extra trip to reach out to the one who was having a hard time. And John wrote that part of the story down so we would know that that's what God is like. And because that's who Jesus reveals God to be, we also begin to realize who the Jesus way is for. Not just the brave, but for scared folks like us who are willing to become brave. Not just for believers, but for doubting folks like Thomas who want to believe despite their skepticism. Not just for good people, but for normal, imperfect people like you, like me, like Thomas, like Peter. We need a more wide, deep, robust, inclusive theology of who gets a seat at God's table. A lot of us have inherited a not very good gospel that says it's only for the brave, the believers, for good people. There are a lot of people writing about this these days in one way or another. One of them is Lisa Sharon Harper. In her book, The Very Good Gospel, Harper says it's time to set aside these thin versions of the gospel and pick up a thick one. Here's a taste. She writes, the peace of self is dependent upon the peace of the other. God created the world in a web of relationships that overflowed with forceful goodness. These relationships are far-reaching between humanity and God, between humanity and self, between genders, between humanity and the rest of creation, within families, between ethnic groups or races, and between nations. These relationships were very good in the beginning. One word characterized them all, shalom. Then the story of the fall explains how the relationships were broken. The rest of scripture takes us on a journey toward redemption and restoration. Shalom is the stuff of the kingdom. It's what the kingdom of God looks like in context, 
It's what citizenship in the kingdom of God requires and what the kingdom promises to those who choose God and God's ways to peace. She continues, to live in God's kingdom in the way of shalom requires that we discard our thin understanding of the gospel. I had to face a hard truth. My limited evangelical understanding of the gospel had nothing to say about 16,000 Cherokees and four other sovereign indigenous nations whose people were forcibly removed from their lands. And it had nothing to say to my own ancestors who were enslaved in South Carolina. Hard truths indeed. There's a lot of unlearning to do. And as we're letting go, as we're shedding that which has been unhelpful and calling out that which may have been harmful, may we also seek out and grab hold of that which offers life and hope. Part of the work of reimagining a thicker, better gospel involves going back to the actual gospel stories and learning to see them through a Jesus-shaped lens. To consider what the original disciples discovered as they encountered the risen Christ who found a way to reach them even in their locked down places. So, what did they begin to discover that first Easter Sunday evening? One word for it is fellowship. Fellowship. A kind of belonging that has nothing to do with status, achievement, or gender, but is anchored in the conviction that everyone matters, everyone is welcome, and everyone is loved. No conditions, no exceptions. Fellowship through a good gospel-shaped lens is not the version of belonging you see at the top of the ladder where only those who think they're the best hang out. It's at the bottom with the rest of us. Whatever else the Jesus way is about, whatever else this movement will become, what that night reveals is that this is an uprising of fellowship, a community where any person who wants to be part of it will have a place. One writer summed it up this way. Jesus showed us his scars, and we're starting to realize we don't have to hide ours. Fellowship is for scarred people, for scared people, and for people who want to believe but aren't sure what or how to believe. When we come together, just as we are, we begin to rise again, to believe again, to hope again, and to live again. Through fellowship, a little locked down room becomes the biggest space in the world. In that space of fellowship, the Holy Spirit fills us like a deep breath of fresh air. Amen? Amen. Before I lead us in our table liturgy, I want to invite you to another simple ritual. If you have a glass nearby or a mug, I want to invite you to fill it with something. Maybe you already have some communion elements ready. It's not too early for mimosa, or at least some orange juice, or coffee, or tea. We're filming in the evening, so we've got some Prosecco. We've got Prosecco. And so, if, if it's not possible to raise a glass, fill a glass, that's okay. Instead of raising a glass, you could stand, 
You could extend a hand. And I want to invite you to the responses that will appear on your screen. So let's lift a glass and respond with the bold text. It's on your worship flows, <laughs> those who are in the room here, so you want to have that handy. Um, we'll say it a couple times so we can really get the energy. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. We too are rising up. We are rising indeed. Let us arise in fellowship. In fellowship indeed. One more time. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. We too are rising up. We are rising indeed. Let us arise in fellowship. In fellowship indeed.